You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Hey guys, thanks for joining me again as we continue to look at the 13 keys to the Emmanuel prophecy. And in this final episode of this three-part series, we will be looking at the final five points. Point number nine, the historical reading explains why both singular and plural forms of address are used in Isaiah chapter 7. Interestingly, Isaiah switches between the singular and plural forms of address in multiple places in Isaiah 7. For example, in Isaiah 7.11, he addresses Ahaz in the singular. Then when he speaks of the Emmanuel sign child in verse 14, Isaiah uses the plural form of address. So when he says, the Lord will give you a sign, emphasis added, the you is a second person plural pronoun. But then subsequently, when Isaiah speaks of the land whose two kings you fear, in verse 16, he switches back to the singular pronoun, meaning he addresses Ahaz again more directly. Far too much has been made of this stylistic nuance, especially by those who hold to the Messianic prophecy view. They often argue that the reason for the different forms of address, particularly in verses 14, plural, and 16, singular, is that this is another clear way for Isaiah to indicate that there are, in fact, two separate prophecies here, one messianic and one historical. So in their mind, the long-range messianic prophecy of verses 14 to 15 is distinguished from the short-term historical prophecy of verse 16, when Isaiah again switches back to the singular and addresses Ahaz individually at the end of the oracle. Leaving aside all of the previously mentioned grammatical and historical problems with the idea that there are two separate prophecies in Isaiah 7, 14-16, we only need to note here that there is a very simple reason for the use of both singular and plural forms of address in Isaiah 7 that has nothing to do with there being two different prophecies within the span of these three verses. This stylistic element is present in the text because Isaiah was never addressing Ahaz exclusively as an individual. To the contrary, Isaiah 7.13 tells us that Isaiah's audience included the entire house of David because they too, along with Ahaz, were living in fear, which we're told in Isaiah 7.2. With this in mind, it makes perfect sense that Isaiah 7.14 would begin by addressing the entire house of David in the plural— because the promised sign was not only for Ahaz, it was for his entire household. At the same time, however, it also makes sense that Isaiah would at some point address Ahaz directly in the singular, like he does in uh, verse 16, and also earlier in verse 11, because as far as we know, he was the only one from the house of David that met Isaiah in the city. In summary, the switch from a plural to singular form of address in verses 14 to 16, which you see at other places in the passage as well, does not prove that there are two distinct prophecies in these verses, or that verse 14 has to be a messianic prophecy. As a matter of fact, 
Once we understand that the fearful house of David in the plural was promised the sign child Emmanuel in the wake of the northern threat to their kingdom, the view that Emmanuel was born in their day is further strengthened and confirmed. The entire passage centers around the idea that God was giving Emmanuel as a sign to both Ahaz and his household in the 700s BC, and the various forms of address used in the text verify this historical reading. Point number 10. The thematic parallels in Isaiah 7 and 8 justify the historical reading of Emmanuel in chapter 7. So in addition to the historical context of Isaiah 7, as well as the individual words and grammatical constructions used in this text, I mean, this is what we've looked at up to this point. I know it's a lot, but we've looked at the historical context and when the oracle was given. We've looked at individual words like Alma and sign and the childbirth language. And then we've also looked at the grammatical construction, the pronoun and antecedent uh, subject pronoun relationships, and also the causal clause and the forms of address. And all of this leads you to a historical interpretation just based on what you see in chapter 7. But in addition to that, in what we're given in chapter 7, there are also a number of clues in the following chapter of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 8, that confirm that Emmanuel was a real child who lived in the 8th century BC. Consider, first of all, the parallels that we find in the section on Emmanuel in chapter 7 and the section on Isaiah's son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, in chapter 8. As I mentioned earlier, in 8, 3 through 4, Isaiah says, So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Like Emmanuel, the birth of Maher Shalal Hashbaz, whose name means quickly to the plunder, prophesied the impending defeat of Damascus and Samaria, Aram and Israel, at the hands of the Assyrians. And like he does when speaking of Emmanuel, Isaiah also tells us that before Maher Shalal Hashbaz is even a toddler who can say, mommy or daddy, this northern threat to Judah will be neutralized. There are so many parallels between this account in Isaiah 8, 3 through 4 and Isaiah 7, 14 to 16 that some commentators have assumed that Emmanuel must have been another name for Isaiah's son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. As we saw earlier, however, in my opinion, this would require an inconsistent approach to the biblical text because it would require us to read the same language in both passages in different ways, symbolically in the case of Emmanuel and literally in the case of Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And because this inconsistent approach does not seem justifiable, a better option is probably to understand that there were multiple sign children born in 734 BC who testified to God's faithfulness in the wake of the military threat to Judah. So Emmanuel and Meher Shalal Hashbaz were likely two distinct children who served the same purpose. And reading chapter 8 historically, as we should, it confirms that Emmanuel himself was also a historical child who lived in the 8th century BC because the language used is 
almost identical. I mean, the, if you really look at it, it's remarkable because after all, it would not make any sense to read the language in 8, 3 through 4 about Meher Shalal Hashbaz as though it indicates a historical child in Isaiah's day while simultaneously reading the same language in 7, 14 to 16 about Emmanuel as though it indicates only a messianic child to be born hundreds of years later. And I know I made this point on similarity earlier when we talked about the childbirth and naming language. And if you take that historical of natural childbirth, you have to take it the same in Isaiah 7. But what I'm saying here under this point is that there's actually even more parallel language than I mentioned earlier. And so here I want to go into all the parallel language. There's multiple points of parallel and comparison in these short passages that deal with both children, which prove, again, that you're looking at historical narratives that suit the same historical circumstances. And when you start looking at the Messianic prophecy view, you start to see that they're very inconsistent in how they interpret chapter 8 in comparison to chapter 7, which is another reason I reject that view. They take kind of a messianic, non-historical reading to a lot of what you see with Emmanuel, but then they take the same language with Maher Shalal Hashbaz as though it's historical. And that just doesn't work for me. It's inconsistent. And just for a little more detailed understanding of the parallels in 7 through 8, I would recommend reading 7, 14 to 16 and 8, 3 through 4 alongside one another. And as you do, you'll see that not only are the three verbs tied to natural childbirth and naming repeated in both passages, so that was hara, yalad, and kara, but so too is the phrase, for before the boy will know, which is the Hebrew phrase, ki beterem na'ar, that's in 7.16 and 8.4, as well as similar phrases indicating both stage of life as a pre-toddler and the defeat of Israel and Aram by the Assyrians. And if you're able to read my article on this, I have all this in chart form, or if you're watching the YouTube video, I'm going to put up this chart, and you can see these parallels very clearly when you look at it visually. If you're listening by podcast, you might have to you know, look up the references yourself or just kind of take my word for it as you listen along. But the repetition of these three verbs connected to natural childbirth, as well as the causal clause for before the boy will know, as well as the age statement and the final deliverance statement in Isaiah 7 through 8, proves that both passages belong to the same historical setting and speak of children born in Isaiah's day. Because again, to argue otherwise would, would require us to sacrifice all consistency and objectivity in the interpretive process, which is a bad option to say the least. And also just on the causal clause, notice that in Isaiah 8.4, the causal clause links this verse to the preceding clause in 8.3. And this further proves that, as discussed earlier, the causal clause in 7.16 links this verse to the preceding clauses in 7.14 through 15, which again rules out the possibility that 7.14 to 16 can be split up into two separate prophecies. So I'm just saying, if you take Isaiah 8.3 through 4 as one prophecy, you have to take Isaiah 7.14 to 16 as one prophecy because the same causal language is used at the end of both prophecies. And if that causal language links 8.4 back to 8.3, 
it also has to link 7.16 back to 7.15. And therefore, we can deduce from this parallel language used in both passages that just as 8.3 and 8.4 belong to the same prophecy, so too does 7.14 to 15 and 7.16 belong to the same prophecy, which again undercuts the entire messianic prophecy view. Now, I know I'm going back to an earlier point there, but it's like, once you realize this is one historical prophecy that can't be broken up, the messianic prophecy view, it really falls apart rather quickly. And as mentioned earlier, I do not believe there is enough evidence to prove that Emmanuel and Meher Shalal Hashbaz were the same child. Uh, looking at the language there, you know, sometimes I've thought maybe they were because the language is so similar. But again, the names are different in the historical context. It's the same context, it's the same time, but you're given slightly different information about the woman, the Alma versus Isaiah's wife and Emmanuel versus the name of his son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So I don't think they're the same, although I understand why some people say they are. Many people in the historical typological camp, they think they're the same. I'm not convinced of that. But even if they were, like hypothetically, it wouldn't really change anything in terms of the fundamentals here. The main point is that the parallels in the narrative that deal with each child are more than enough to justify a purely historical reading of Emmanuel when he appears in 714. So bottom line, looking at this in the broader literary context, Isaiah chapters 7 through 8 flow together as one historical narrative about sign children born in the 700s BC. In Isaiah 8, 18, Isaiah even reiterates this by saying, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And not surprisingly, Isaiah uses the same word here for sign as he does in 714, which verifies that he has in view sign children who were born in Judah through natural means in his day, but who nevertheless, based on when they experienced certain life events, bore witness to the fact that God was for Judah and against her enemies. And another interesting point, just while we're talking about uh, chapter 8, is that later in chapter 8, Isaiah even calls all of Judah by the name Emmanuel in Isaiah 8.8, 8, and then reiterates saying, God is with us in verse 10, Emmanuel, when proclaiming that the strategy of Judah's enemies would not be successful. And this repetition of the Emmanuel language from 7.14 in 8.8-10 is another clue that Isaiah views the child Emmanuel from 7.14 as a representative of the entire nation in the 700s BC. So I think it was a, a child. I don't think it was just symbolic. But what he's doing in chapter 8 is he's developing the Emmanuel language from chapter 7 and kind of declaring that he views Emmanuel as a living witness to the fact that God would deliver Judah from their enemies. So Emmanuel, the child, is born. That's the topic of chapter 7. And then because of this, in chapter 8, Isaiah goes one step further and calls the entire nation Emmanuel because now that verifies God is with us. And again, it's just confirming the, the, the historical setting of all this. The many parallels between Isaiah 7 and 8 are usually never mentioned by those who hold to the idea that the Emmanuel prophecy in 714 is nothing more than a messianic prediction about the virgin birth of Christ. 
However, when we read these two chapters as part of the same historical narrative, remembering that there were no chapter breaks in the original Hebrew text, it becomes even more clear that a historical approach to Isaiah 7, 14-16 is the superior option. At this point in the book of Isaiah, the focus is almost entirely on the deliverance of Judah from the threat of Israel and Aram, as well as other geopolitical events that would transpire in the following decades. And this is what Isaiah 7-8 through is all about. Point number 11. Isaiah 9 develops the historical sign-child motif from Isaiah 7-8 through and uses it as the basis for a messianic prophecy. So this development is going to be important once we get to why Matthew is giving a messianic reading of Isaiah chapter 7 in his gospel. But before we get there to Matthew, I want to look at just how this motif of a sign child is developed from 7 and 8 into chapter 9 of Isaiah. So many of us are aware that two chapters after Emmanuel is introduced in Isaiah 7:14, the Messiah is spoken of in Isaiah 9:6 through 7. And this text contains one of the most glorious descriptions of the Messiah, his mission and his identity in the entire Bible. As we read, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There should be no doubt that Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 is a direct messianic prophecy that speaks of both the humanity and divinity of the Messiah, as well as his future reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. But because this is the case, some scholars who interpret Isaiah 7:14 as a prophecy about the virgin birth of Jesus have argued that the son, Emmanuel, in Isaiah 7:14 and the son in Isaiah 9, 6-7 must be the same child thereby proving that both passages are indeed direct messianic prophecies. In this vein, Rydelnik contends that Isaiah 9, 6-7 is an inner biblical or intertextual allusion to Isaiah 7:14, one that develops the Emmanuel prophecy and tells us more about the messianic child and when he would arrive, i.e. only after a long period of darkness. From Rydelnik's standpoint, the nature of Isaiah 7:14 as a direct messianic prophecy about the virgin birth is proven not only by the word usage in Isaiah 7, particularly the term Amma, but also by its proximity and relationship to the clear messianic prophecy in Isaiah 9. We have already seen that the context and word usage in Isaiah 7 does not prove that Isaiah 7 contains a direct messianic prophecy, so we don't need to retread any of that ground here. But with regard to the relationship between Isaiah 7 and 9, we should note that there is a better way to understand the connection here, one that maintains rather than diminishes the tension and interplay between the historical and messianic elements in these passages. To briefly elaborate, Isaiah 7-8 through only speaks of ancient history. However, 
Because Isaiah was concerned not only with his own historical context, but also with the future Messianic age, in chapter 9, he builds on the historical sign child theme from chapters 7 through 8 and introduces the ultimate sign child, the Messiah himself. There is a beautiful element of transition and crescendo in Isaiah 7 through 9 that is unfortunately lost if we merely conflate the son Emmanuel in chapter 7 with the messianic son in chapter 9. Isaiah 7 through 9 begins with Isaiah's historical context, speaking of children born in his day, Emmanuel, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, but then the text builds and climaxes in a finale focused on the divine messianic child who would come only many years later as the perfect expression of God's faithfulness to the Davidic household. So there should not be any doubt that Isaiah 7 is intertextually and theologically linked to Isaiah 9. However, the relationship on display here is one in which Emmanuel in the 8th century BC is presented as a kind of type and prophetic foreshadowing of the final messianic child who is introduced separately in chapter 9. Isaiah's main point in these chapters, 7 through 9, is that God bears witness to his covenant plan of salvation through the birth of specific children. And this plan was manifest across the ages. It began with Emmanuel in Isaiah's day, the topic of chapter 7, but it culminates with the Messiah himself in the eschatological future, the topic of chapter 9. In that sense then, in a very remarkable way, Emmanuel was not only a sign that Judah would be delivered from Israel in Aram in the short term. At a deeper level, Emmanuel was also a sign that the Messiah, the true manifestation of God's faithfulness to David, would eventually come. And we see this message more clearly when we look at Isaiah 7-9 through in a holistic fashion, while still preserving the historical and messianic textures of each individual passage in question. Hamilton summarizes well the relationship between Emmanuel and Isaiah 7 and the Messianic son in Isaiah 9 when he writes, The child's name, Emmanuel, is apparently a reflection of the confidence of those who believe that God would keep his promise to protect protect them by his presence in the 8th century BC. However, in the wider context, these are pointers toward a child to be born who will in fact be mighty God. So Emmanuel, the historical child, points forward to the messianic child. Also, just in case someone might wonder why we should interpret Emmanuel and Maher Shalal Hashbaz in Isaiah 7 through 8 as literal names, while at the same time accepting that the names of the Messiah in 9, 6 through 7 are symbolic titles, not actual names, We should clarify that the reason has to do with differences in literary genre. Isaiah 7 through 8 follows the standard procedures of historical narrative, such as we find, for example, in the book of Genesis or 1 Samuel. Isaiah 9, on the other hand, is an example of Hebrew poetry, and more specifically, what I would call prophetic poetry. And the poetic genre is evident primarily in the elements of repetition and doubling that occur throughout Isaiah chapter 9, but not in Isaiah 7 and 8. So Isaiah 9 uses this common repetition and doubling strategy that you see in poetry. So for example, Isaiah 9 begins by saying, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And then he restates the same idea, those who live in a dark land 
the light will shine on them. So it's repetition. And this type of repetition and restatement language is a defining characteristic of Hebrew poetry. And consequently, when we read that the name of the Messiah will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, we can be confident that we are looking here at symbolic language that describes the Messiah's characteristics and identity, not his actual name. But on the other hand, when we see the naming statements earlier in Isaiah 7 through 8 with reference to Emmanuel and Meher Shalal Hashbaz, we can be confident that we are looking there at actual names because the difference in genre, poetic poetry versus historical narrative, requires this to be the case. All that to say, when Isaiah 7 through 9 is read intertextually, this prophecy provides a fascinating glimpse into Isaiah's personal view of history. Isaiah understood that God's faithfulness to Judah would be manifest in his own lifetime through the sign children born in the 8th century BC, and he was therefore concerned with political events happening in his own context. Isaiah was no monastic recluse who shunned the near horizon of history and its importance in the plan of God. At the same time, however, Isaiah's deeper focus, the true anchor of his heart, as it were, was the future messianic age and the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah did not allow the promise of near-term political deliverance to overshadow the eternal and more important hope of the future Messianic age. He was fully invested in his world, but he was also living for the age to come. And we see this virtue and balance reflected beautifully in the way Isaiah 7-9 unfolds and progresses from the historical to the eschatological horizon. Point number 12. The Gospel writer Matthew interprets Isaiah 7 typologically, not as a direct messianic prophecy. We now come to one of the most important questions in this study, which concerns the use of Isaiah 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. Most of us know the story well. Mary is betrothed to her husband Joseph, but before they consummate their marriage, she becomes pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, being a righteous man, then seeks to divorce her quietly, but before he can, the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then we are also told parenthetically in verses 22 to 23, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Then the narrative continues, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As we read this passage, we have to ask, Why does Matthew say Isaiah 7.14 was fulfilled in the life of Jesus? Well, as we know, proponents of the Messianic prophecy view argue that Matthew does so because Isaiah 7.14 was always about the virgin birth of the Messiah. According to this view, Matthew was citing Isaiah 7.14 as an example of direct prediction and direct fulfillment. Throughout this study, however, we have seen that Isaiah 7.14, at the time the prophecy was given, was not about the Messiah, but instead prophesied about a historical child who would eat curds and honey 
as a result of the Assyrian defeat of Israel and Aram. That's the historical view. With this understood, some commentators, including those who argue against the reliability of the New Testament in bad faith, such as some Jewish anti-missionary groups and atheists, often contend that Matthew had no idea what he was talking about, that he was misinterpreting Isaiah's words, and that he was merely looking for a convenient proof text to support his deluded and far-fetched views about Jesus being born of a virgin. So when looking at the spectrum of approaches here, one is sometimes left with the idea that either Isaiah 7.14 had to be a direct messianic prophecy at the time the word was delivered, or that Matthew was misquoting Isaiah and therefore undermining a core tenet of Christian orthodoxy, namely the virgin birth. As in many other areas of life, however, there is a moderating position here that is superior to both of these more dogmatically driven approaches. This moderating position is one that maintains the historical nature of Isaiah 7.14-16, while also respecting its deeper messianic significance in light of later New Testament revelation. Plainly stated, Matthew quoted Isaiah 7.14 as fulfilled in the life of Jesus because he was reading Isaiah 7.14-16 typologically. Matthew understood that the original child Emmanuel was a type and prophetic foreshadow of Jesus himself. And even more to the point, Matthew understood that what God was saying through the birth of Emmanuel in the 8th century BC, he was again saying through the birth of Jesus in the fullness of time. In the same way that the child Emmanuel signified God's presence with his people, the child Jesus, who is actually God in the flesh, was and still is the ultimate sign that God is with us. Just like Emmanuel in Isaiah's day, Jesus is the sign from God that his people have nothing to fear and that the day of our salvation has arrived. As noted earlier, there was already a typological relationship between Emmanuel and the Messiah revealed in the book of Isaiah, particularly in chapter 9, where Emmanuel kind of becomes a type of the greater messianic child. And in light of this relationship, it should not surprise us that Matthew articulates this same typology again and presents Jesus, the man he believes to be the Messiah, the son of Isaiah 9, as the truest expression of God's presence with his people. In a certain way, Isaiah had already said essentially the same thing in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Now, of course, with this in mind, we might then wonder why Matthew did not quote Isaiah 9 instead of Isaiah 7 in the Nativity story? Why is Matthew quoting this passage when he could have quoted any number of other Messianic prophecies that were direct Messianic prophecies like Isaiah 9? And the likely reason for this goes back to the historical setting of Isaiah 7 and the way that typology works by way of analogy, let's say, and correspondence. And I'll explain what I mean by that. It seems that Matthew wanted to draw attention to how Jesus, just like Emmanuel in the 8th century BC, was meant to serve as a sign of God's saving presence, particularly to a distressed people. And this was better achieved by appealing to Isaiah 7 instead of Isaiah 9. Also, the way in which Jesus' virgin birth functioned as a sign of God's present activity in Matthew's day just as Emmanuel eating curds and honey functioned as a sign of God's present activity in Isaiah's day, made Isaiah 7.14 a good choice in the context of the gospel birth narrative. Because 
Matthew wants to draw these parallels. There's a sign back then with the curds and honey diet, and then there's a sign in the time of Jesus with the virgin birth. Emmanuel represents God's presence with his people, and his name means God with us, and Jesus represents God with us, and he's fully God and fully man, that kind of thing. Then also, people were living in a time of distress back then, and people are living in a time of distress in the time of Jesus when he's born. They're under Roman occupation, etc. So there's these correspondences, these typological shadows from the days of Emmanuel to the days of Jesus, and Matthew appeals to Isaiah 7 because he wants to highlight these parallels specifically. In his excellent article on Isaiah 7 and Matthew's typology, Hamilton explains the correspondence between the birth of Emmanuel and the birth of Jesus, which also clarifies these parallels that led Matthew to cite this passage as fulfilled in the life of Christ. And this is a really good explanation that Hamilton offers, so I'll just read this. He says, In Isaiah's day, Judah was under threat from Syria and Ephraim. In the days Matthew narrates in his opening chapters, the nation is under threat from Rome, whose constant presence testified to the nation's ongoing subjugation. Furthermore, in Isaiah's day, the king Ahaz, though a descendant of David, was faithless. In the days described in the first chapters of Matthew, the king over Jerusalem, Herod, is also faithless, but now he is not even Jewish, to say nothing of the fact that he is not a descendant of David. But in addition to the historical correspondence between the details of Isaiah 7 and the time of the birth of Jesus, there is also an aspect of escalation, whereby the meaning of these events is intensified by the coming of the Messiah and the period in salvation history that begins with his arrival. Whereas the deliverance guaranteed by the birth of a child in Isaiah has to do with the threat from Syria and Ephraim, the deliverance guaranteed by the birth of the child in Matthew goes deeper. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 The child of which Isaiah speaks will be named Emmanuel because his birth testifies to God's faithfulness to his promise not to abandon his people. The child whose birth Matthew narrates, by contrast, will represent in his own person God's presence with his people. So as far as academic commentaries go, Hamilton offers arguably the best explanation of the historical typological view on Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1.22-23 that one is likely to find. Actually, the only area I disagree with Hamilton is that he kind of tends to see Emmanuel and Meher Shalal Hashbaz as the same child, where I see them as distinct. But everything else in Hamilton's uh, presentation is, is really spot on, in my opinion. And his thesis, or his main idea, Hamilton's, centers around this idea that New Testament typologies exhibit correspondence or parallels with earlier Old Testament events, people, and institutions, while simultaneously containing elements of what he calls escalation or intensification. And that correspondence and escalation is really important to understand if you want to understand how Matthew is reading Isaiah 7 typologically in light of the birth of Christ. So in Hamilton's words, typological interpretation sees in biblical narratives a divinely intended pattern of events, events that take place at later points in salvation history correspond to these earlier events and intensify their significance. 
And consequently, with regard to Matthew's citation of Isaiah 7.14, Hamilton concludes, Isaiah 7.14 does not predict that one day 700 years in the future, the Virgin Mary will give birth to the Messiah, nor does Matthew claim that it did. So he's not claiming when he mentions fulfillment. He's not saying that he takes it as a direct messianic prediction. However, Matthew saw a particular pattern of events in Isaiah 7 through 8, and he claimed that this pattern of events was fulfilled in the corresponding, intensified pattern of events surrounding the birth of Jesus at the dawn of the new age. In the life of Jesus, the pattern came to its fullest expression. And so let me just briefly elaborate there. In the life of Jesus, the pattern of God's faithfulness and presence with his people being tangibly manifest, particularly through the birth of significant children, Emmanuel and Maher Shalal Hashbaz originally, whose lives were connected to divine signs and wonders, finds its deepest fulfillment. So that pattern of sign children that begins in Isaiah's day finds a deeper fulfillment with Jesus. And so what began in Isaiah's day is correspondent, typology rule number one, to what happened in Matthew's day. And moreover, what happened in Isaiah's day is escalated or intensified, typology rule number two, through the virgin birth of Christ. Christ is the eschatological Emmanuel, the literal manifestation of God with us. And the sign connected to his birth is not merely a specific diet tied to a military defeat, but a miraculous conception unparalleled in redemptive history. Thus, Matthew feels perfectly comfortable citing Isaiah 7.14 as fulfilled in the life of Christ because after the nativity, the prophecy from Isaiah's day glistens in a new and brighter Christological light. This reading of Matthew's gospel may not satisfy those who want to find in the Old Testament nothing but a proof text and predictive prophecy about the virgin birth of Jesus, but we must be content here to accept what God did and did not communicate about the birth of the Messiah ahead of time. And we must also be content to read Matthew on his own terms, especially because this approach is what opens up the true message Matthew wishes to convey through his birth narrative. In Matthew 1, 22-23, Matthew is drawing an analogy between the birth of Emmanuel and the birth of Jesus. And through this correspondent, though intensified fulfillment of an Old Testament type, he is declaring Jesus to be the true manifestation of of God's presence with and faithfulness to his people, even in the midst of all the darkness, political turmoil, and uncertainty that characterizes life in this fallen world. For Matthew, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, in a way that even the original Emmanuel could never truly be. And in this way, he, Jesus, fulfills Isaiah 7.14 and gives the prophecy a deeper messianic meaning in light of New Testament revelation. Far from being an example of Matthew's irresponsible use of the Old Testament then, Matthew 1, 22-23 is actually an example of Matthew's deep understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, and in this particular case, his deep understanding of the historical setting of Isaiah 7. At the same time, Matthew 1, 22-23 is also an example of Matthew's high Christology, in that his citation of Isaiah 7:14 evidences his belief that the Messiah is indeed God in the flesh, an idea that was already nascent in the immediate context of the Emmanuel prophecy itself in Isaiah 9, 
6 through 7. Now, this historical and typological reading of Isaiah 7 and where Matthew cites this in, in Matthew 1 is confirmed when we look at other examples of where Matthew drew a typological line from something in Israel's past history to something in the life of Christ. For example, in the middle of Matthew 2, Jesus goes down into Egypt with his parents and then comes back into the land of Israel. And in this context, Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, which reads, Out of Egypt I called my son, as fulfilled in the life of Christ. In 2014, I actually wrote my master's thesis on these verses in the Gospel of Matthew. And like with Isaiah 7, I discovered that there is no evidence that Hosea 11.1 was originally about the Messiah. Rather, it was simply a statement about historical Israel at the time of the Exodus. And more specifically, in context, Isaiah 11 highlights Israel's failures after they left Egypt. However, because Matthew read Israel's history typologically, he presents Israel as a type of the Messiah and the historical Exodus as a type of a greater messianic and eschatological Exodus that is now being ushered in through Christ's first coming. So just like Israel, Jesus too goes down into Egypt. That's correspondence. But whereas Israel was prone to failure and could therefore only be tied to an imperfect Exodus, Jesus comes out of Egypt and as the perfect divine son walks in perfect obedience to the father. That's escalation, these rules of typology. This signals to the world that there is now a new eschatological exodus taking place for the people of God in Christ that will be marked by righteousness and messianic deliverance, not sin and failure, both now and in the age to come. And consequently, Jesus and his new exodus fulfills Hosea 11.1 in the sense that the imperfect type, Israel in the original exodus, nevertheless foreshadowed a greater and more perfect anti-type, Messiah and the eschatological exodus. Likewise, the same type-anti-type relationship that we see with Israel, the exodus, and Jesus in Matthew 2.15 is evident with Emmanuel and Jesus in Matthew 1.22-23. And both examples prove Matthew's typological approach to the Old Testament. Emmanuel, as the imperfect type, only signaled temporary political deliverance, but Jesus, as the perfect anti-type, signals eternal salvation. Now, to be sure, there are some direct messianic predictions in the Old Testament. Not everything is typological, and we should not deny that. We've already seen that Isaiah 9 is a direct messianic prophecy, and there are many others including Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 53, Micah 5.2, Daniel 9, and Psalm 110, some of my personal favorites. But along with these Messianic prophecies, we must also recognize that the Hebrew Bible is Messianic in multiple ways. It makes some direct Messianic predictions, while also containing references to historical institutions and figures, such as Adam, Melchizedek, the sign child Emmanuel, who are related to the Messiah prophetically and typologically in a different way. And for this reason, when studying prophecy, in order to understand the message being communicated by the biblical writers, we need to make sure we are putting each prophecy into the right category. Are we looking at a direct messianic prediction, or are we looking at something historical that nevertheless has a deeper messianic and typological layer, which was only revealed fully 
through the coming of the Messiah and the writing of the New Testament. In the case of Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew's quotation of this verse in Matthew 1.22-23, all of the evidence favors the historical typological view over the direct messianic prophecy view. And that, of course, has implications in regards to how we teach Isaiah 7, how we teach the Bible, how we teach prophecy, how we teach messianic prophecy in the context of evangelism. And, as I'll note here, it also should impact, the typological reading should impact how we view the meaning and message of the virgin birth. So, there are some people, I think they they have this idea that if we accept a more layered and typological reading of Isaiah 7, will somehow undermine our faith in the Messiah or give, you know, opponents outside the faith ammunition or that will undermine the virgin birth of Christ or something like that. And in my opinion, none of this is is valid uh, criticism. I think it's kind of like misplaced fear-mongering because we should recognize that being precise in our interpretations and accepting wherever the evidence leads will actually give us more credibility with those genuinely genuinely seeking the truth. And perhaps most importantly of all, as I mentioned, this approach will also give us a better understanding and application of God's word in the context of our churches, congregations, and personal lives. Because as I stated at the beginning of this study, the ironic reality is that we cannot truly understand the significance of the virgin birth and what God is saying to us through the virgin birth until we accept that Isaiah 7.14 does not actually contain a direct prediction of the virgin birth of this event. Those who champion the Messianic prophecy view often spend a disproportionate amount of their time in apologetics mode, arguing about the meaning of Alma and implying or directly stating that if we don't accept that the virgin birth of Jesus was predicted in Isaiah 7.14, we are in danger of compromising this important doctrine altogether. And all of this is, I understand, well-intentioned, but it represents a poor application of energy and focus. Because in reality, it's only the historical typological view that not only gives us a better reading of the biblical text, but also allows the beauty and power of the virgin birth to shine all the brighter. It highlights that the true message of the virgin birth is that God is with us today, just as he was with Judah in the 8th century BC, and actually even more so. After all, if the sign child Emmanuel offered confidence to the fearful inhabitants of Judah in Isaiah's day, how much more then should we have confidence in God's presence with us today, now that the true Emmanuel, God in the flesh, has been given to us as the ultimate sign of God's presence among his people? No trial in life, no degree of pain, no betrayal or disappointment or unanswered prayers or sickness, no war or famine or plague or wicked political regime, can ever nullify that the Son of God was born to testify to us that God's saving presence is at our right hand forevermore. That is what the virgin birth is about. It's about God saying something to us today and bearing witness to us today of something that is parallel and analogous and correspondent and yet even greater when compared to what he was saying to Judah through the birth of Emmanuel in the 700s B.C. Jesus, the sign child, has entered the world, and this means that in the end, and all along the way until then, 
we are going to be okay. The Messiah's birth heralds salvation for God's people and inevitable judgment upon every evil force that opposes us. This is the message of the virgin birth that is tied to the typological reading of Isaiah 7, 14 to 16. And as we can see from this application of the Emmanuel prophecy, it is indeed the historical typological view that reveals the deepest meaning and application of Matthew's nativity story, which is why all of this interpretive legwork is so important at the practical level. The historical typological view is tied to nothing less than what God is still saying to us through the virgin birth of our dear Lord and Savior. Last, and certainly not least, point 13, the gospel writers, particularly Matthew and Luke, affirm the virgin birth of Christ. And I just wanted to end on this point so there would not be any doubt as to whether or not I believe Jesus was born of a virgin. We should absolutely accept and emphasize that the gospels say Jesus was born of a virgin. Just because Isaiah didn't predict this, it doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin because the gospel writers, they tell us that he was. So Matthew and Luke, for example, they use the Greek word parthenos to describe Mary in Luke 127 and Matthew 123. And as we saw earlier, parthenos was a Greek word often used in the Septuagint to depict a virgin. And even though it didn't always mean virgin in an Old Testament context, by the time you get to the New Testament, it essentially always means virgin because words have a tendency to kind of change and evolve over time. So I would say the use of Parthenos in the New Testament is enough to say that, yeah, they're indicating a virgin birth there, even though that's not the case in the Old Testament. But even more importantly than Matthew and Luke's use of Parthenos, however, because we don't want to rely on individual words alone, we should also note that there are ample context clues in the Gospels that clearly communicate that Mary was a virgin when she conceived and became pregnant with Jesus. So, for example, Matthew tells us that before Mary and Joseph, quote, came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.18. Then at the end of the Nativity story, Matthew says Joseph did not know her, Mary, until after Jesus was born, Matthew 1.25. And likewise, in Luke, after Mary is told by the angel that she will bear a son, she inquires, How can this be, since I have never known a man? Luke 1.34 These are the precise types of phrases that we should expect to find in a narrative about a virgin birth, which, remember, are absent from Isaiah 7. And therefore, even though we cannot base our belief in the virgin birth solely on Isaiah 7.14, we can be confident that Jesus was born of a virgin because the New Testament writers tell us this was the case. Okay, friends, that concludes our study of the 13 keys to the Emmanuel prophecy. I know this was a rather thorough and exhaustive study. I trust that it was also educational and inspirational and edifying. As always, if you want more information about my ministry, my books, other resources that I put out, you can visit my website, Shiloh media.org. You can also follow me on YouTube and Twitter. I'm under the handle at Travis M. Snow. Thanks so much again, guys. God bless, and I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. 
Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 